Uh, well, we are uh, very, very, very humbled uh, and excited to be joined by Anthony Neal today. Uh, Anthony is the head of production for the Indicator line at Powerhouse Films. Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for making time for this. No worries. And uh, Adam is actually able to join us today. So I don't know, Adam, if you want to say hi quick. Hello, everyone. You don't normally hear me on interview episodes because Chris records them when I'm asleep. So good to be here today. Yeah, for sure. So, so Anthony, uh, I guess maybe one of the things that right out of the gate would be super interesting is, you know, if you casually go on because you're interested in a Humphrey Bogart set, um, when you land on your website, you're going to see Powerhouse and Indicator and then also Limewood Media. Uh, is, it, is it possible just to give a five or 10 second kind of background as to, to what that is and, and where they all, how they all fit together? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so the company is Powerhouse Films. That's the main thing. Um, so if you look at, you know, our email addresses, if you go to the website, it's Powerhouse Films. Um, and then Indicator is a line within uh, Powerhouse Films. Essentially, it's like Powerhouse's Films um, boutique Blu-ray label. And then Limewood is the distribution side of things. So Limewood distribute our stuff. So currently we've got the sale going on. If you're ordering through the sale, it's Limewood who handle getting the packages from them to you. That's perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, three different three different uh, legs to the same stool, right? <laughs> kind of thing, yeah, yeah. And then Limewood also do you know stuff with Second Sight and uh, anime as well, um, but purely in like a distribution sense. Oh, and Anti Worlds as well. They also distribute their discs. Perfect. Uh, thanks for that background. Yeah, I think that's relevant because we're actually recording this during your sale. So I, I'm sure you can't go into too much detail, but generally speaking, how's it going? Has it been another smash sale like it always is? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so this one's running for a week. It finishes on Friday, which I don't know when, when is this going out? Will that be once the sales ended? Yeah, 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 probably, yeah. 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 Um, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. One of our week-long sales, we do one every six months. Um, and yeah, it, it covers, you know, all of the releases up until like a certain point. So I think the, the newest title that you can get in this sale is Columbia Noir 4. And then everything released before that is also available as long as it's in print. Um, we've already sold out of Cisco Pike and we're bound to, you know, sell out of a few more titles during the sale. Um, but yeah, yeah, they always go very well. They always seem to go better than the previous one as well. Um, yeah, yeah, people seem to like our stuff. So they're out there buying it, I guess. Well, that's a pretty good segue. I don't think it's fair to say that people kind of like your stuff. I think there's <laughs> a there's a low-key addiction <laughs> to what y'all are putting out. Actually, I like the way that Adam phrases it. Um, yeah, um, I have a very important question. I'd like to know how you manage to get the heroin into your box sets, because that's the only way I can make sense to how addictive they actually are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think part of it is, so, so, so basically Powerhouse is a very small team. There's not that many of us. There's a few more, um, I think like we, we've gained like a couple of members of staff since I started with them like three and a half years ago. But one of the crucial things that we've got is, is all of the core team have worked in the industry for other companies and labels in the past, and everybody's worked as a producer as well. 
so everybody understands all of the the elements that go into you know making a disc because they've done it before with that company and this company and all the rest and by coming together because we've got that experience i think we all have an understanding of what it is that people really want and so that's just what we try and do you know um i, I think one of the, the the key things in terms of like if there's an ethos or whatever is that all we are is is we're just beholden to the film that we're releasing so whether it's things change or mad dog morgan or you know a howard hawks film or a noir set or a dietrich set or whatever we're just trying to do the best by that particular film or that collection of films and everything revolves around that concept like you know it really shows through um i think it but even even down to the artistic decisions you make, like there's a very visually distinctive style. Uh, and one of the things that I remember jumped out to me when I was going through the first noir set is that, you know, it's a beautiful yellow box, right? Nice choice of color with that very distinctive kind of one person in action, one or two people typically in action on the mm -hmm. cover. And then when I actually got to the, um, to the movie, the lineup, I believe, it, that's where that image is from, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Wallach, yeah. Yeah, and I saw that image and then it kind of clicked for the box. So it feels like, you know, there's so much thought that goes into not only the aesthetics of it, but then also, like you said, making it kind of relevant to the film. And I, I just don't know that there's anybody out there who's doing that combination of aesthetics as well as meaning uh, as well as you. Mm. I, th I think part of it is I, one of the key decisions that, that was made early on is that um, wherever possible, and sometimes it isn't possible because imagery isn't available in, in you know, a, a, a high res enough uh, situation. But generally what, we, what we're taking the, um, the lead from is the original poster artwork. Because one of the things that you have to think about as well is, well, I think, think there's two things here. One of them is that obviously a lot of work went into that artwork back in the day oftentimes with the director involved as well or you know columbia for example would have you know a huge department devoted to this kind of thing and they knew what they were doing so because all of that energy has already gone in to that artwork plus a lot of them have the recognition uh, recognition factor as well so you know when we're doing a film like um I think of a good example well you know some of some of the you know the hammer films for example then people recognize those posters they know what the film is your job's already done there you know right um but then the other thing as well is because styles and whatnot change over time then if you're looking at a poster or rather you know one of our our, our covers which has you know made use of a poster from a film from the 1960s you know that's a film from the 1960s or you know that's a film from the 30s because you know we have that kind of subconscious understanding of the artwork if that makes sense it, it makes a lot of sense i think and i you know rather than adam and i just geek out and how awesome you are for an hour which by the way we could easily do <laughs> um maybe this is a good time you kind of mentioned some of the production decisions so maybe this is a good time to kind of take one step back what does it mean uh, to be head of production at Indicator Line, you know, within Powerhouse? And what does that job kind of entail on a day-to-day? -day? 
Yeah. So, so, so basically, um, my job is so it kind of starts off that you know um, some titles have been acquired, and I'm not really involved in the acquisition side of things. Although, you know, I'll be aware of what's going on. I can, you know, give my opinion and all the rest. But essentially, my job starts when you know the films have been acquired. So, you know, for example, we've acquired Mad Dog Morgan. And my job then is to turn that into a Blu-ray. So everything that happens from, you know, from that initial point of acquisition to the point where we sign off on the disc and the book and the artwork, I have to oversee all of that in between. So that's managing, you know, the design of things and talking to Nick, our designer, about how we're going to approach that, which posters we're going to use. Are we going to make it one of our plush releases? Which is what we call, you know, the the, the fatter ones in the the hardboard, um, cardboard, um, yeah, slip cases, um, and then also, um, you know, making sure that the the subtitles are sorted. I speak to we have separate booklet editors, so I will speak to Jeff or Beth, who oversee our booklets. We will talk about, you know, who we could get to write the new essay, what kind of stuff is already out there. And then also, obviously, you know, um, the, the the film itself. Does the film exist in different versions, for example? Therefore, do we need to present, you know, different cuts on the film? Um, we also want to look back on what previous releases have done. Have there been any errors or issues that are fixable that, so we can ensure that ours is, you know, a definitive release? And then there's the whole question of extras, of course, so you're looking at what's already out there, who we could speak to now, whether that's, you know, people who are involved in the film or an academic or, you know, an Uber fan, you know, whatever that kind of uh, side of things is. And yeah. then also delving into the archives. So um, on plenty of our releases, we've included um, short films that are somehow connected to the film in question. Or we found, um, you know, original production footage. Um, also, you know, sometimes we, we find that the trailers have never been on previous releases. So we hunt out the trailers and present those for the first times, you know, do new scans of them if we can. We like to include Super 8 versions of the films because that was like an original kind of home video format. And that's interesting to see, you know, how they go through the process of, of getting a two hour film and condensing it down to 10, 15 minutes, for example. Right. Um, so yeah, so, so all of those elements are all going on at the same time. And it's a case of, you know, juggling those, but then also juggling that month's releases, which we're about to announce that month's releases, which we've just announced that bunch of releases that we announced the month before. And we're still, you know, just in the final stages of, and then also making sure that, you know, we're also looking far enough ahead in the future to ensure that everything's ticking over. And, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's maintaining that bigger picture whilst also ensuring that the minutiae of every release is also, you know, paid attention to as well. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that sounds so overwhelming. Um... No, no, no. It's... It's, it's a strange thing. I mean, I, th I think all of us within the, the company spot, because we kind of come from the, 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 the point of view of the fans, that, you know, we've been watching films for, you know, years and decades and all the rest. Um, and, you know, we care about each of the releases that we do and whatnot. So 
you know, there's that thing that, that people say, isn't there? That, you know, if, if you do a job that you love, it never feels like work. So, you know, that's, that's a huge part of it, I think. Um, so even like today on a Sunday, I'll probably, you know, dip in and do something because it, it, it's, you know, it's a really, really good job. Um, well, the, I want to get into some of the questions around what you, what you just said, but maybe this is the right time to ask, you know, how does somebody get this job? Because it's, it's kind of a dream job, right? I think for all of us that are, that are heavy mm. collectors or kind of in this world as fans, it mm. seems like what you do is like the, the best job possible <laughs> in this space. Um, is it, you know, can you kind of walk us through your journey and, and how you got here? I know you have, you were um, with Arrow for a while briefly, but anyways, to the extent that you can just kind of, how did you actually get this? Yeah, so, so, um, so I mean, I was always into films from when I was a kid, buying film magazines and all the rest. Um, I did go to university to do film studies, but it wasn't really my cup of tea, so I dropped out of that. Um, but then a few years later, we got to the point where the internet was accessible enough that I then started to write online. I, I used to write for a website called DVD Times. And one of the funny things about DVD Times is that a number of people who contributed to that website in various ways went on to work in the business. So Nick, our designer, he contributed to them here and there. Uh, the McKenzie brothers, David, who does the encoding, Michael who works at Arrow, they both used to write for the site. John Robertson, who works for Eureka, he used to write for the site. And it was never like a collective kind of thing. Oh, and Michael Brook as well, of course, who we work with and who also works with a number of other companies. Um, and even though it wasn't like a, a kind of collective thing from that, I think because, I mean, I, I think from my point of view, that was like a, a demonstration of the, the, the passion that I had for film, but also for physical media as well. And that, you know, because you're writing about DVDs, you know, a few times a week and all the rest that you get to have a, an understanding of what goes into the release. Yeah. So through that, I then got to, you know, just through like the occasional email, sometimes you would just email somebody about a release that they'd worked on and kind of say, oh, I've got a question about this. Could I have a bit more information on, you know, this side of the restoration or whatever it was. And then through that, I just got to know some people who worked, for example, for BFI video. And then ultimately it got to the point where Arrow was looking for a new producer. And I believe my name was suggested um, by one or two people. And then they, they just gave me a tryout basically. Um, I was working from home, um, working on things like uh, The Fury was the very first release that I worked on for them, the Brian De Palma film. Sure. Um, and that all worked out well, that ultimately they took me on full time and I was with them for, I think it was around about five years, possibly five and a half. And then an opportunity came up at Indicator. And yeah, so I just, I just moved on to Indicator and that was um, three and a half years ago now, when Indicator was about a year old, maybe a year and a half. Um, and yeah, I've been with them ever since. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the way that I took it, which I know isn't, it isn't a conventional way you know there was no no learning or anything like that um i guess you know a lot of it was you know in the right place at the right time i guess 
No, it's interesting this idea you bring up around writing, though, because, you know, Jared over at Mondo Macabro got that role because he was writing about world cinema and got connected with the gentleman who's own, who owns Mondo Macabro. And mm. I feel like there is something to be said for being in the scene, I guess, right? And and being mm. around mm. And, and being a voice there. I, I just couldn't help this DVD times. I couldn't help but compare it in my head to... Uh, and forgive my French, but the Cahiers de Cinema or whatever, the... the <laughs> yeah, I'm not, yeah, I wouldn't quite go <laughs> that far. Um, and like I said, I, it, it feels, I don't know, like I said, because there wasn't any kind of collective decision amongst the writers at DVD Times that we would go into DVD production or whatever. I think it just kind of happened that way, independently, individually. Um, but then somehow, you know, a lot of us have all reconvened, um, um, yeah, many, many years later. I mean, I can't even remember how long ago that would have been. It must have been like early 2000s, I guess. Yeah. I started they, to write for them, yeah. You know, there's a site that was kind of running alongside y'all called the Digital Bits. Yeah. So I would flip between the Digital Bits, DVD Times, and then there was another uh, big one I can't remember right now. But basically, y'all would tell me what to buy from. At that time, the best place to buy online was a Deep Discount DVD. Mm. Um, and so y'all basically just told me what to buy next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was. Yeah, it was an interesting time, certainly. Um, you know, there, there was. I mean, there was so much stuff coming out as well. Whether it was new stuff or you know films getting released onto DVD for the first time, you know, classics or obscurities. And then, but I think over time through that, you did kind of see the the growth of the DVD label, um, where certain labels were beginning to come into their own, that they were doing, you know, certain things, finding their own niches. Um, so, you know, BFI Video were doing it with their Flipside range, for example. Um, Arrow, you know, soon then became Arrow Video. Um, second Run suddenly sprung up. Um, and over time as well, even in more recent years, uh, companies like Second Sight, for example, have you know found their own voice, as it were, um, that you kind of know what you're getting from different labels now. So just to, to jump in on something that you mentioned there, Anthony, because um, one thing I've always loved about Indicator is how sort of diverse the, um, the, the releases are. Um, you mentioned that you kind of know what you're getting with certain labels, like with Criterion or with Arrow or with even like Second Sight and Second Run. You, you kind of know their niche. They have their own sort of corner of the market. Whereas with Indicator, I feel like when I look at your monthly announcements for you know future releases, I never know what I'm going to get. And it's, it's kind of a great thrill about it. I, I know you mentioned earlier you're not really directly involved with the acquisitions part of things. But is there any sort of insight you can give as to, you know, how the decisions made for what you're going to do, whether it's going to be something like Columbia Noir or something really schlocky like William Castle or you know anything in between, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I, th I think a lot of labels will have the personality of you know whoever is heading them up or you know mm. who their main kind of acquisition person is. Um, certainly in the smaller labels, you see this a great deal. Something like Second Run is almost like Melly, who runs the company, has, you know, seen this amazing film, wants you to see it, and he's personally lending you a Blu-ray of that film and saying, here you go, check That's this cool. film yeah. out, it's amazing. Uh -huh. 
That's a cool way to put um, it, yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, on a on a kind of a, a, a bigger means. I mean, so so within Indicator, I think there's definitely a focus on British cinema of a certain era. I think because mm. a lot of us involved are very much into that side of things. Um, you know, the the initial US titles were heavily in that direction with films like Bartleby and The Brute, the Peter Sellers films and Super Job for a Woman. Um, and, you know, currently there isn't that much in the way of foreign language cinema, for example. Mm. So I, I think we do currently have uh, very much a, a British roster and a classic Hollywood roster and, you know, are exploring those areas in particular. But then it's also true, and I think this is true of probably any label, that, you know, things mutate over time. Sometimes you find out that people are really into, you know, that particular thing, which sometimes might surprise you. So you delve into that a bit more. Um, I think our, our first two Mexican titles, for example, um, which we released um, this month. Yeah, they look great. I'm going to be picking those up. Um, but those are something a bit new for us. I mean, we've done, you know, we've done kind of classic genre cinema because we've done things like Night of the Demon and the Hammer films mm. and uh, so forth. The William Castles, like you mentioned. Um, but um, I was actually going to ask about that specifically because Phantom of the Monastery is such a great grab. What a and, and obviously La Llorona as well. Um, mm. But do you, are you going to go deeper into Mexican cinema? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's already been announced that there's there's more to come. Um, but I think there's also that thing where, with anything, is that, you know, if people really respond to that, then you lean more heavily into that, you know? Sure. So with the Columbia Noirs, for example, you know, people really, really like those. So we were releasing them what, once every three months, it seemed. For the first four, it always seemed like I would sign off on one and then boom, we're working on the next one, you know. <laughs> and then we've also got that, you know, after Columbia Noir 5, there's more plans and I'll be diving straight into those pretty soon. I think I think one of the other things which is worthwhile mentioning as well is um, when you're working with certain studios, um, there's always this question of what's available in terms of high definition masters, uh, what can be restored and what isn't available. It isn't like, you know, you have full reign of being able to pick any film you want. Um, if you're in a situation where you're also doing your own restorations, which we're beginning to do more of, that opens up more options as well. But even then you need to make sure that, you know, there are sufficient film materials available. Yeah. Um, so those kind of questions come into it as well. So currently with Sony, for example, you're beholden to their masters. Nobody else restores Sony titles, Sony restore their titles. Um, so yeah, you know, you have lists of, you know, titles which are available and all the rest to choose from, but you need a HD master in order for it to be on Blu-ray. And obviously you want it to be a good one as well, because mm. I think the fans are much more aware of such things nowadays that if you are releasing something on a subpar master people will be aware about it uh will be aware of it sorry and we'll talk about it on forums you know so <laughs> for sure yeah kind of 
for sure i've often heard people say oh the bit rate isn't very good with this master i'm like i don't understand what that means so i'm just <laughs> i'm just happy to own it but i i definitely mm. that there's definitely a lot of people like that who would no, look mm. at it from a very technical point of view mm. and just just to pick up on what you said just from a, a fan point of view i didn't get to sort of put it in earlier when you were talking about the, the box sets and the aesthetics and such even what i appreciate as a fan as a collector even away from the artwork and stuff which is obviously fantastic um i just appreciate how robust the boxes actually are as i own a lot of box mm. sets it's it's kind of my kryptonite and a lot of boxes that I've gotten from other companies, it's very flimsy card. Whereas I feel like I could throw your boxes down the stairs and they'll be okay. <laughs> um, again, I, I think that this comes in part just from the fact that, you know, we're all fans ourselves. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I've got thousands upon thousands of discs in the other room, you know, and at least a thousand of those are unwatched as well, which I really need to work on. <laughs> Um, but but that's it yeah (laughs) but because of that then yeah because you're handling you know all of these other titles and the rest you can see what works what doesn't work what can be improved on and you know because you do want them to be the very best and also i think one of the things which has changed since you know the the kind of dvd times days as it were when we were writing about dvd in, in you know at the start of the format is that Whereas once it was, that was the, the general means of consumption for, for film in the home, you know? Um, everybody would watch stuff on, on DVD. You would watch dramas on telly and everybody would have a stack of DVDs next to their telly or whatever, mm-hmm. which you don't see anymore now because the general means of consuming is, is streaming, essentially. Mm-hmm. So what we've kind of got now is we're much more of a, a collector's market. And because of that, um, you know, people, you, you want to therefore take care of the collector. So whether that's in the packaging or ensuring that, you know, you've got a quality master or that, you know, the extra effort's gone into the book content or the disc content or whatever, it's all part of that same thing. Because you, the, 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 the customer now isn't somebody who's just happened to pick up, you know, that disc in a supermarket they specifically want that disc and they've got expectations and those expectations are quite high and understandably so. Um, but that the legacy that you speak of, cause I wanna, I wanna get into the special features cause I think there's a really interesting discussion here around how all that's coordinated. But just as a really quick detour, uh, one of the legacy questions I had, which I think is interesting, you talk about how you've all been producers in the past, mm-hmm. you know, back in the DVD days, I used to buy a lot of the Tartan Asia Extreme line. Mm. And there's a legacy, there's a straight line from Tartan to, to Indicator as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two of the, the main staff members um, in Indicator Paris now both work for Tartan uh, back in the day. And that was where I don't remember specifically about the supplements there. I'm sure they were okay, but I think it was more about, you know getting some of these movies that otherwise there's no way to get in the u.s right they were they were so good about bringing a lot of these titles over hmm yeah um it's not something i can really talk about because i, I wasn't there at the time um oh no it's fine it's just more of just a i think just another point of reference for me as i think about what's going into the company today 
you know, mm-hmm. it, it, there was these innovative things being done even back then from Tartan, I feel like with around distribution and, and getting some films seen that uh, mm-hmm. otherwise wouldn't have been seen on, on physical media. So yeah, yeah. Although I think again, that that's that, that um, you know, what I was talking about of, you know, sometimes you release something and it surprises you how much people were really into that particular release. So therefore, you know, you're looking to doing more. And I think Tartan had the same thing where one of their earliest releases in the the kind of Asia Extreme kind of thing would have been the first Ring film, mm-hmm. which obviously did phenomenal business. So then they looked in and, you know, they did Dark Water right. and, you know, so on and so forth. But then, you know, they really went into it, didn't they? There was a hell of a lot of stuff that they were releasing, catering for that kind of audience, rather than, I mean, I can remember the whole thing of importing from Yes Asia was quite a big thing in the early days of DVD. Right, right. You know, if you had a region free player, then, you know, you could discover these whole new areas of cinema. And I think that was, you know, a key thing in terms of South Korean cinema becoming much more, um, you know, having much more of an international awareness. It wasn't so much the, you know, Western distributors, whether in the UK or US, were picking up the films. It was the fact that people in the UK and the US now had an accessible means to them thanks to the internet and, you know, region-free DVDs. Yeah, exactly. And even stuff like the Zatoichi films for a long time, it, it was hard to get all of them um, in the, in one region. So you had to kind of be mm. have a region-free player to see them all. That's mm. been fixed now, but like Lone Wolf and Cub, a lot of those Japanese movies. Anyways, not to go too deep into Asian cinema. I just, <laughs> it, it was, uh, it, it's, I feel like that spirit is obvious in the way that the, the, content is displayed and created and then produced so that was my that was my main point that just that Mm. legacy comes through in in many different ways um which is great now i did have a question about the supplements though since that's where i kind of took the detour on so yeah yeah i think outside of the artwork and the nice thick packaging that adam mentioned these are all very real things there's another area that people will always call out as being unique about indicator which is that if you have a comparable release to anybody else in the marketplace, yours is going to have the most supplements almost, almost every time if I can think about it. Mm. Um, How big of a team is, is working on that kind of what's that like, who, who's the one that's sitting there mapping out the supplements or, or how do you go about approaching that even? Yeah. So um, I mean, essentially every release has, has one producer. Um, so it's it generally whoever the producer is, they're the person overlooking that. So from my own experience, I can talk about, for example, the Dietrich box or the Columbia Noir box, um, boxes rather, um, that, yeah, that, that, that's essentially down to the individual producer, but there are certain things that have been built up over time, um, especially in terms of archival stuff. So we, we have, you know, a very good relationship with the BFI in terms of accessing all of those amazing recordings that they've done at the National Film Theatre over the years, for example. Uh, we have good relationships with places like the Library of Congress and National Archives in the US. So when we're looking for, um, you know, uh, rare pieces of film, one of the things that we did on uh, the John Ford box set when we did the long grey line, we found out that John Ford and the cast had made a promotional film for Bonds. And they filmed it on the set. And you've got, you know, Tyrone Power and Maureen O'Hara and all the rest. 
and nobody had seen this film. It appeared in a couple of filmographies in, you know, one or two, um, you know, big books on, on John Ford. I think, you know, Tad, Tad Gallagher's a uh, few others. And we managed through the Library of Congress, no, sorry, the US National Archives to locate a copy and got that scanned in and presented that for the first time. Oh, wow. Um, but a lot of these things are easier if once, you know, you've kind of established that relationship. So yeah, so we, we have, we're pally with a lot of different archives all over the place. And we can go to them and say, you know, oh, we're looking for this particular short film or whatever it may be. This particular interview with Kim Novak, um, could we have access to it, you know? So that's a, a kind of key part there. And I, I think whoever's working on whichever release, we have certain kind of go-tos in that respect. Um, but again, it, it's it's that thing of being beholden to the film itself. So, you know, when you're doing Irreversible, for example, right, then you know that there are certain boxes which have to be ticked in order to make that a definitive edition. So, you know, it has to have both versions of the film. It has to have, you know, the deleted scene that was on previous editions. It has to have the music videos that were on previous editions and that short film and all the rest. We were fortunate in that instance where um, they'd already made a documentary to commemorate uh, the 20th anniversary. So we had access to that through the BFI and our friendliness with them. Then we could access the audio from, um, I've got it in front of me. So there was like a 2002 Q&A that Gaspar Noe, Monica Bellucci and Vincent Cassell did. We could access that. Um, and then Gaspar also did a masterclass in 2009, so we could, you know, access that. Um, and yeah, you, you just kind of, you know, build it up that away. Um, again, you know, you're doing it from the fan perspective. If I was to buy an edition of this film, what would I want on there? You know, all you're doing really is just answering, answering that question. I mean, of course, you're also looking at other editions um and making sure that you know you don't come in second best to those um in certain cases for example with mad dog morgan all we're really doing there is compiling all of the extras from all the different previous editions because that covers everything anyhow you don't really need to do anything new with that kind of release because philip moore is all over it and dennis hopper is there and jeremy thomas and the stunt man and you know that actor and this actor and so on and so forth um so yeah um, but then also one of the things that I like to do, um, because I think there is a risk in, in certain instances that um, films could just sit in the archive forgotten about. Um, so, you know, if there's an opportunity to present a short film, which was, you know, directed by the same director as that film noir or starred that, you know, same actor as, as that you know may west film or whatever it is then we want to look into that and get hold of that and present that um and one of the other things as well which i think is worth mentioning is there are certain extras which really only exist in a, a blu-ray kind of situation so for example on charlie bubbles there's an elaborate scene with um cctv where you see different characters walking in and out in the house that Albert Finney's character owns. And through the, the, the BFI again, we were able to find um, some test footage of that CCTV footage. And through that, we discovered that Stephen Frears, who was assistant director on the film and obviously then went on to become, you know, 
very famous director because of dangerous liaisons and high fidelity and, and whatnot. Um, he's the one who sets it all up. So we've got this raw footage from, you know, this particularly elaborate bit of film, but you could never, you would never show that on the telly. You would never show that in a cinema. You wouldn't, um, you know, pop it up on streaming. It only really exists as a supplement to that particular film. But if we weren't to do anything with it, then that reel would just sit in an archive untouched, you know? So I think there, there, there is an element of just wanting to get this stuff out there, um, you know, and make it more available. That it isn't always just the film. There's a lot more that you can add to it um, as well. With the film noirs, we included loads and loads and loads of short films on there, either because, you know, there were certain connections, um, but then also at some point, I just hit upon this idea that uh, with the, the Three Stooges, we knew that Sony had loads and loads and loads of, you know, the, the short films that they'd made. And then I, I can't quite remember how it all fell into place. But I think my first realization was, oh, hang about, they're making these films at the same time of like the, the golden age of, you know, Colombia Noir is going yeah, on. Right. Um, but then also um, knowing that because the Three Stooges would have to pump out, you know, two, three, four films a year, whatever it was, that they were often parodying what was going on in the culture at the time. Mm. So I kind of figured, well, there must be some where they're, you know, emulating noir or whatever. And then the more I kind of looked into it, I was like, well, hang about, we can actually connect this film with that film because it's it's trying to tell a, a similar kind of story or whatever, you know? I think like on, I can just get Columbia Noir 2 in front of me. Um, so for example, in the film Framed, um, the, the Glenn Ford film, which is on Columbia Noir 2, the essential story to this film is that it involves a murder plot, mistaken identity, uh, loads of money, and like a, a malicious blonde. And then there's a Three Stooges film, um, Up in Daisy's Penthouse, which is about a murder plot, mistaken identity, you know, tons of money, and a, a gold digging blonde. So you kind of go, wow, you know, that film makes for an interesting accompaniment to that. And it's about, it's about looking at archives in a, in a slightly different way, um, you know, from like a slightly skewiff perspective possibly and trying to do something unique through that um and it just adds a, a, a kind of personal touch to the releases you know there's uh there's like some unique fingerprints on the releases as a result if that makes sense um I, oh, yes it definitely does and i think i heard two things in what you just said the first thing was for certain films like let's say irreversible mm. the context around the film can be so important and the what the filmmaker was trying to do and hearing from the performers and hearing that the 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 kind of you know thoughtful questions that were being asked around the release of the film that can be so important to include to understand what what that was trying to do because obviously you can just focus on uh the the two really controversial scenes in that movie and mm -hmm. say oh you know what a waste of a movie but mm. if you hear that context all of a sudden you could appreciate it much like um uh solo is another one that comes to mind where you know, if you really if you really take the time to listen to the 
the commentary around the movie, you start to appreciate it, even if you don't like it, but you got, mm. you know, you, you receive a deep appreciation for that movie. And I think Irreversible is certainly one of those for me that jumps out as, as, a, as a great example of that. And then on the flip side, you have movies where maybe you don't need as much context. Like, you know, if you're watching a noir film, you kind of get it, right? That's, you, you understand what's happening. However, there's this an amazing, like enveloping experience that can be created around the movie to really create like a, a, it's not just about the movie itself, but it kind of puts it in a particular time and you get to see like the context more around where it is in history and what was going on. And, uh, mm. and that, and that can be really helpful as well as a way to have, but it's, it's all geared towards these definitive editions. Right. So there's kind of two, mm. two buckets I heard in that, in that answer. Yeah. And I think they're essentially the same thing because what our job really is, is, is the job of a, a historian, basically that you're presenting, you know, this particular film or collection of films and providing that bigger context and that sense of understanding around it. Um, one of the things I always say is that whenever I finish on a particular release, I could go on to mastermind the quiz show and that film could be my specialist subject. <laughs> everything that I need to know about that particular film. And you hope that you pass that on to the, the viewer as well. But like you say, there, there are different elements to it. So with the Columbia Noirs, for example, one of the things that we found was that a lot of the filmmakers involved in those, whether it was the directors or the screenwriters, uh, sometimes the producers, we're also heavily involved in the, the World War II uh, documentary filmmaking and then the post-war documentary filmmaking. And those elements of documentary, you know, bled into the noirs themselves. And even if that isn't necessarily an entirely explicit connection, the, the, the you know, the process of, of watching these films with the accompanying short films, I think allows you to build up that bigger picture of, of what was going on in American filmmaking and American culture at the time. One of the things that we have done with like the Nars as well is, is you know, obviously you can't escape things like, um, you know, the, the Hollywood 10 in communism and, you know, Senator McCarthy and all the rest. On um, Tight Spot, for example, we were able to find recordings of the Senate hearings which were into um, organized crime because the film had loosely been inspired by those. And again, that's an interesting thing that you can present a work of fiction, but then also present kind of like the documentary fact behind the inspiration as well, like, you know? And again, it just builds up that, that bigger picture for, you know, whoever's watching to, you know, just have a, a fuller understanding of what's going on. Um, I think one of the things which, which isn't always apparent um, especially over time is, is, yeah, just like an understanding of, you know, what was going on in the culture at the time. Um, you know, so like at the moment, you know, when we go to the cinema to see, you know, whatever kind of film, we can kind of say, oh, they're talking about, you know, this thing that's going on in the news or has been going on in the news. And we understand all of that just implicitly because we're yeah. going through it. But if you then watch a film 60 years later, you may know that, oh, it was the era of this, that, and the other, but you won't have the same, you know, kind of idea that we have now. So if we are presenting ideas which are, you know, in parallel to the film or adjacent to it, or, you know, somehow kind of loosely connected, then I think that could be quite a powerful idea. I love that. That 
It's so true, though. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. Well, there, I guess there's no reason to mention names, but some of the films were like maybe an actor died recently or maybe they're talking about a geopolitical thing that's going on where, you know, it's so relevant. You don't have to be told that if you're living through it. Right. Mm. Um, but then if there was a famous actor that was going through a scandal in the 50s or like you said, these Senate hearings or something like that. If you're if you're living through it at the time, obviously you don't need that context. But now, so so much history has passed since then. Um, mm. It it creates that experience of of like almost being able to kind of put yourself in the theater seat in that moment with all the full context around it. Um, mm. Do do you find that people? Uh, you know, it, it's I I think there's this interesting uh, tension right between kind of uh, I don't know if tension is the perfect word, but there's this interesting dynamic that happens where people are excited about special features, right? Um, and when they're buying a disc, they'll make decisions based off of that. But I, I never can get a sense of if people actually watch them all. <laughs> um, I I certainly do. Um, uh, do you do you ever get? Because you know you you said that you have this you know thousands of movie in your collection, right? Um, mm. when, when you sit down to watch a movie, do you tend to go through the kind of make a night out of it and you know, watch some of the supplemental material, get the context. Is that something that you try to do as, as you have time as well? Um, yeah, I, I I think it works on on two levels as well. Is that one, there is, yeah, you know, you're just doing it from the, the, the kind of punter perspective. But then there's also the, you know, eyeing up the competition in a way. Not like in a, a negative kind of fashion, but like, oh, you know, they spoke to that person and they're really, really good in front of the camera. So, you know, we must remember to potentially use them. You know, there's that kind of element to it as well, that you want to know what's kind of going on elsewhere, um, partly to ensure that, you know, we remain as, as doing things, you know, as well as we can. That, um, that leads me into a question actually around, you know, you had mentioned before, but making sure you have like definitive editions and such. Like, mm. is, is there a competitive angle to that? Like I'll use the Dietrich set as an example. It's obviously prior to your release, the definitive release would have been Criterion's region A of that. Mm. Mm. And then you guys brought your own version out obviously for the region B market. Uh, I'm not sure if it's region free or not. I actually don't know. It was obviously on region B as well uh, as yourself, but you know, does that, is there a competitive aspect, not necessarily in a negative way, but like you said, just making sure that you're the ones putting out the definitive edition that if someone needs to decide, will I get this version or this version? They obviously want you to be choosing your version over the other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, like you said, yeah, I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it's more of like it, it eggs you on, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, that edition's really, really good. We need to do, I remember like when I worked at Arrow, um, and, you know, there were quite a few titles which Criterion had already done. For example, you know, Michael Mann's Thief. And one of the, the mindsets that you had was, well, let's do more than they did, you know? Um, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things is, is, is that there are all of these kind of you know, considerations and all the rest that you may find out that there's this amazing documentary on, you know, the star of the film you're working on or the director that was made in 1967. And it would be amazing to get it, but you just can't find the film or the rights holder or whatever. So there, there is this kind of element of, of, you know, luck almost in terms of what you can do. But then, yeah, when you pull that off, that's, you know, a really good thing. And you, sometimes you do have that thing where you're like, 
I mean, we had it with the Dietrich set where, you know, it's like, oh, well, we've got, you know, we've got this documentary on there. And then we've also got, you know, that documentary on there as well. And the Criterion didn't have either of those. And even though this extra is the equivalent of that extra and this does this and that does that, you know, that's what edges it over to being more definitive. Getting the, the Harry Kumar documentary, for example, you know, himself a really interesting director, having done Daughters of Darkness, that, you know, to, to be able to present his documentary on von Sternberg from 1969 for the very, very first time was, you know, uh, a key thing there. Um, yeah, and you, yeah, certain things were matched, you know. I think we've both got the um, the fashion side of Hollywood on there. We've both got the, um, the audio for the deleted um, song. But yeah, you're trying to just edge it, you know, just try and be that little bit better that if somebody is there, I mean, you know, in the ideal world, they would own both because there's unique elements to each and, you know, there yeah. are standouts on each and all the rest. Um, but yeah, if somebody could only make the choice between one and the other and, you know, region lock-in and that kind of thing isn't um, isn't a hurdle for them, then we want them to buy our edition, of course. So yeah, it just, but yeah, like I say, it just, it just eggs you on just to do that a little bit more. Not that, you know, we ever, you know, cut corners or, or take it easy on like, you know, if we're doing a release, I mean, especially now where we're doing UK and US releases, for example, where there, you know, there there isn't like a, a competitive uh, option out there. You just, yeah, ultimately you just want to do best by the film. And that's yeah. what we do. I think with the Dietrich set, I think the artwork beats it on its own anyway. It's the most beautiful, <laughs> it's the most beautiful artwork on a, on a Blu-ray I own, to be honest. Well, 20th Century might just edge it, but I prefer the Dietrich films over 20th Century, so I'll give it to Dietrich. Yeah, well, both of those, I, those are interesting ones as well, because neither was, um, you know, the original poster. The, the yeah. Dietrich image was from a, um, a forthcoming attractions catalogue that Paramount had put together. And it was a film which never got made. But wow. because it used that iconic image of Dietrich looking up with the, you know, the cigarette and all the rest, then it obviously has, you know, connections with with the films itself. So it just it just made perfect sense that it would work that way. I remember we had, you know, a lot of discussions about these things, as we always do. And I could just picture it. I was like, no, she's looking up at the title. And then Nick, you know, did his amazing stuff by all of those typefaces that he found. All of that stuff as well. We always, it's always geared towards being authentic. So mm. the Columbia Noir typeface, for example, that's the typeface that Columbia used in their press books at the time. We found one for Drive a Crooked Road, the Mickey Rooney film, which is in uh, volume. Number one. one. Number one, that's yeah. It, yeah. And so, that you know, that was the, you know, the, the inspiration there. Um, with 20th Century, I think that's a lobby card um, that we found, which, you know, you just saw it straight away. You're just like, well, this is one of the most magnificent images. It's stunning. That I've, I've seen, yeah. So, you know, it just kind of, you know, makes the decision for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the, the releases become the personalities of the curators. Um, mm. And I know that you said you're not on the curation side, but I am curious when you go to relax at the end of the day or <laughs> whenever you do get a chance to relax and just watch mm -hmm. a movie, what are you typically reaching for? Um, 
I mean, I, I, I try to watch as much as possible in as diverse a means as possible. So I won't watch, you know, the film that I'm going to watch next to be the same as the film that I've just watched. I think also in this kind of job, it's good to have as much of a general film knowledge as possible. Even if we were only releasing Hollywood films from the 1930s, for example, I think it's still, you know, important to, to just embrace embrace everything. So, so yeah, yeah, I'm just looking for, you know, something new, something different, um, something, well, new to me rather, not as in, you know, released this uh this year yeah 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 um and yeah just just to absorb as much of it as possible um because also i think that that you know that kind of thing then does inspire the the slightly um you know different kind of viewpoint of doing things like i said with like you know the stooges and the noirs for example it's like well no these things do fit together it may not be immediately obvious but you know there is a connection there so I think if you're doing that thing of watching a you know a broad kind of palette or broad broad spectrum of films, then it, it you know allows that kind of thinking more. That's what if if I I won't pull up my letterbox here since this is not a video podcast, but I um I've I feel the same way. Like I you know I'm somewhere in you know 2020 for one movie, and then the next one will be a silent film, and then I'm in the 60s for you know some Italian mm. Felicia Tetchy mm. film and. There's just there's just so many movies to discover, right? It's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. And every year they keep making more, you know. So uh, <laughs> you know it keeps us busy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it also because there are so many, you know, equally excellent boutique labels out there as well who are just you know doing their their own thing, and they seem to spring up constantly. You know, there's a new one which is just um, just announced itself, which is going to be focusing on African cinema, for example. You've got companies like um, Era 4444 over in the US, you know, doing like their kind of thing. And yeah, it's great, to, you know, to to be able to sample all of that. Um, and it gives you quite a diverse, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, you have choice. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, it, yeah, you're not, con you're not constrained. I mean, of course, you know, the internet makes things easier as well. I mean, you know, when I was first getting into film in the 90s, it was, you know, what I could save my pocket money up for to buy on VHS or, you know, rent on VHS over the weekend or what was shown on, on the telly, basically. Um, and there were, you know, four channels, essentially. So you were beholden to, you know, the, the curators of the film programs there. I mean, which was really good because, you know, you would have subtitled films on a Saturday night, you would have movie drum films on a Sunday. You could get quite a rich, you know, um, experience of cinema that way. But now it's it's ridiculous that I can, you know, hear about a film for the first time, find out there was a DVD which came out, you know, seven years ago or whatever. And I still buy loads of DVDs as well because sometimes it's the only way to see these films. And yeah, just pick up a second-hand copy off eBay for two pound fifty. You know, that's amazing <laughs> that we can do that. Yeah, that's true. We're, we're very spoiled. I remember recently I went through all the um, the uh, Jodorowsky films, and mm. he made this one movie in 1980 called Tusk, mm. and it never got a physical release. And in his view, it's never finished. That's why. But um, and I remember feeling so frustrated that I couldn't find it. <laughs> I, like. <laughs> 
you know, but even that that concept is even pretty crazy to think about the fact that, you know, there's this one guy who was, I mean, he was famous to an extent, but it's not like he was Dick Donner producing these big movies back in the 80s and 70s, you know. Mm. Um, but we still have these like definitive editions of his movies. And the fact that you can even be frustrated if one of them isn't out, I think is it just speaks to how spoiled we are, and which is really fun as a, as a movie fan. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it also just shows that there's there's still so much to be mined as well, like, you know, especially if you are looking for, you know, something entirely new that you haven't heard of, um, which, you know, I, I, I hope that our announcements satisfy as well. That it isn't like, oh, it's that film and that film and that film. I've seen those. And yeah, they were OK. It's like, well, what's this? I've never heard of this before. You know, especially something like the Pemini organization that we recently announced. Nobody's seen those films since they first come out, you know. Um, I had that. There's always that, that uh, you know, there's always those kind of things to, yeah, just keep uh, to keep going to. I actually had that page open. I was going to ask you about that next. That's great. I'm glad you went there. Um, <laughs> I think it's a great example of because these were even when they were released, they had a fairly niche kind of market, right? Yeah. I So, um, I mean, so there, there were three films in total. The first one is like a, a a short mid-length kind of film. Um, it's, you know, 40 minutes or so. So because of that, it would only find its life um, on the big screen on a supporting pro program, which took a while for it to find. Um, the second film, Assassin, similarly took a while to find, you know, which film it would play with. And then the third film um, happened the same time that there were uh, pub bombings in the UK. So subsequently, cinema attendances that week were at an all-time low. So nobody went to see the film. And then, you know, they then went off and did their, their separate things. But I, I think this is a very good example of um, talking about, you know, the, the individuality of certain labels where, because me and Sam, who co-owns the label, are very much into British cinema and all the rest. And I remember he phoned me up. He was like, oh, have you heard of these, uh, have you heard of uh, Pemini? And I said, no, 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 I don't think so. And he, he named a couple of the films. And I was like, no, 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 I've never seen those. Um, and he said, I, I think we should look into, you know, doing them. Because the casts, you know, were very interesting. And the, the ideas behind them and the fact that, you know, just, just the idea that a, a bunch of friends fresh out of film school, um, decided they wanted to make films, didn't really know how to do it and just kind of went about it the way they thought they should go about it. And, you uh -huh. know, were able to pull off these three films. Um, so, yeah, so so we ended up uh, tracking down Peter Crane, the director, Michael Sloan, the writer, sorted out the deal and all the rest. Um, and, yeah, restored them. But, I mean, I never got to see the films until they were scanned. There was still that element of, well, you know, what are these films going to be? But sometimes, you know, you just kind of need that faith. You just can't go, no, 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 these, these, you know, on paper, these sound very, very good. And, you know, fortunately, the reality is that they are very, very good films as well. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the drive behind that is, again, this, this, you know, wanting to see new stuff, even if it is from 1972, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. It's crazy that you can just... You nearly anything that you might have seen once on tv growing up you can almost find it like at least a dvd if not a blu-ray like there's mm. an example of a film that you'd probably be more familiar anthony than, than chris would because it's a british 60s horror film 
And I remember I caught it on Channel 4 as a teenager at very late at night, probably like 12 o'clock at night or something. It was called The Haunted House of Horror uh, with, with Frankie Avalon. And, mm. you know, just completely niche film, like an early slasher almost. Um, mm. like I, ne- I never thought I'd ever see that film again. But like I just looked it up here and I can buy a Blu-ray of it. Like yeah, just yeah. nuts to me, like a film that nobody would have ever heard of that I can just go yeah. buy on Blu-ray now. It's crazy yeah. that nearly anything you see nowadays, which is great for us as consumers and film lovers, mm. that there is such a wide market because it means you you get a chance to see all these kind of crazy films that you would never mm. thought you'd ever see again. I mean, there, there was also a thing, though, where, you know, when, when I was getting to film in the early 90s, um, one of the key, one of the main things that you would do is you would buy the film guides. So you know the Time Out Film Guide, Halliwell's, those kind of things, and just pour over them and read about these films. And you know you might see some enticing production stills, but you would know that you might have to wait, you know, a decade until you'd be able to see them, because you know the the, the choices were fewer. Um, and I, I don't know, I think like back then that, that instilled a kind of patience in you, you know, an anticipation and excitement. Oh, I'm finally getting to see this film after, you know, having read about it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, which isn't really the case anymore. You know, you can find out about this film and, and it can pop through your letterbox in two days time. Yeah, that's a, a, a different thing. Um, yeah. I'm not well, sure what point I'm trying to make there. Um, I think we're I'm very just... spoiled, I think. Is, <laughs> I think that's what we could talk yeah, about. We're yeah. very spoiled. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. What, one question I did have, I want to make sure if, if, you know, to the extent you can kind of talk about this. Um, I've always been interested in your numbered system because it feels like, um, you know, it, it feels very intentional. Like a lot of the, the, the box sets tend to be grouped together where it's possible right mm. then some of the individual individual releases you'll kind of jump around a little bit it seems like like the Peminize 138 139 mm. um so I, I don't know if this I, I again if this is getting too much into the weeds of kind of what's going on behind the scenes don't no pressure to answer but i have always been curious how you think about those numbers and kind of how you know the order they're released in um i mean there isn't really much to it in a way i mean um generally you know, acquisitions will be done in groups. Um, things like Pem and I, which are like a one-off acquisition done with the original filmmakers, are quite rare. Normally you're going through a license or whether it's Studio Canal or Sony or Universal. And so that will be like a group acquisition of, you know, X amount of films. Um, and then, you know, once kind of the contracts are done and the deals are done and all the rest, we can start working on them. We need to assign numbers to them so generally, you know, they just get assigned whatever ones are next. The only time that we've kind of done things a little bit different really is, so like with Columbia Noir, for example, we jumped straight ahead to 300 because we wanted them to kind of be consecutive. You know, the Noir 2 would be, you know, 306 to 311, Noir right. would be 312 onwards. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, there, there isn't really a, a great deal of thought. I mean, one of the things that you could probably intuit from it is you know how long something's been in the works that if it's got quite a low number compared to some of the other stuff then that normally means we've been working on it behind the scenes for quite some time although i mean especially with the the pandemic that just kind of threw a lot of things up in the air anyhow um which you know it's a slowly uh becoming um you know right 
easier to deal with. Um, you know, especially like early on where we could no longer go out and film interviews, for example, or, you know, um, certain institutions or whatever were closed so we couldn't access, you know, stuff from that archive or this archive. Um, and that all kind of changed. I think actually one of the things which might be interesting to talk about is um, one of the things which has come through from the pandemic is that people are now used to having Zoom extras or Skype extras or whatever on Blu-rays. Because this is, you know, if you, you know, if we're going to release, say, Geronimo at such and such a date, and, you know, we can't send a film crew to Walter Hill, but we can, you know, access him through Zoom, then that's what we're going to do. And I think over the last couple of years, uh, viewers have become more used to this. Yes. Um, but also, I think what it's kind of done in an interesting way is now it's always an option. So if somebody is difficult to get to because they live in a remote, you know, part of the country or whatever it is, or, you know, it's just easier for them. I mean, if, if you think about it, you know, you could be a very famous filmmaker, for example, and it's easier to go into your spare room and do an interview than, you know, that whole arrangement of let's hire a place and a film crew and, you know, travel them there and back and all the rest. It could be an imposition for a lot of people. Whereas, sure. you know, Zoom has kind of opened that up a lot more. And the other thing as well is, is you know, the technology has improved a great deal. We've seen reviews of some of the, the interviews that we've done via Zoom. And people think they're just normal interviews, you know, because the quality is, 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 um, is good enough. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So whilst the pandemic, you know, certainly had, you know, a lot of effects, we didn't release as many titles for the first few months, especially, um, you know, it, it, it has, you know, changed certain things. In some ways, you know, there, there have been a couple of unexpected positives in terms of what we can do and who we can access and how we go about that. There's this new industry that's kind of boomed up in the pandemic here in the US. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's global, but um, any sound studio now has become a place where animated films can basically be recorded virtually. Mm. And a lot of, you know, anytime where there's not, you don't need to have the actors in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. um, they actually have the ability to, you know, I think it was, there's some of the recent Disney films, even the entire movie was shot in sound studios all over the world. So it's this cool, like, like you said, kind of this unintended consequence of the pandemic is that now there's this new normal within the industry. And uh, it's, it's cool to hear that extend into what you're talking about as well. Mm. Um, I mean, just, just generally as well, the, the technology is, is, you know, just very different to, to how it once was. So um, one of the, 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 the things about Powerhouse as well is that there isn't an office. Everybody works from home. Um, some of us haven't even met in real life even once, you know, um, because of that. I think I've met the vast majority, but there's still one or two, even though we speak on the phone most days and, you know, all of this kind of thing. Um, because nowadays through the technology, you don't need, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, all of our discs are authored by David McKenzie, who's based in New York, but through, you know, Dropbox and such things, I can access everything that he's working on. I can burn discs at home, play them at home on a variety of players, do all of the QC that way. Everything's become much more in reach, a bit like, you know, the films themselves, like we were saying, you know, where you can hear about this film and watch it, you know, the day after or whatever. 
Um, and that's, you know, I think that's becoming more and more. And maybe somehow, I don't know, this isn't really a fully thought out idea. Um, but I think maybe that, you know, that that, that has, has an impact on, on extras as well, that, you know, people can edit at home quite easily now to very, very high standards. You know, we can film in various ways to very, very high standards. And I think because of that, if that's given us more options as well, then it means that we can do more. You know, there, there, there seems to be fewer constrictions. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're getting to talk to a filmmaker or somebody who's adjacent to the film uh, and, and you're getting context around the movie that you wouldn't have had otherwise, I think that's the most important thing, right? And so the mm. fact that there's all these avenues being opened up. Um, it is funny you say that though. I remember the first time I was watching and, and there was a Zoom meeting uh, on the Blu-ray extra. I remember being like, is that a thing now? But then <laughs> by the third or fourth time, it just kind of became normal, right? It just... You, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the key thing is, is, you know, do you make a decision that, you know, you just don't hear the voice of that person on that release, you know, right. and, you know, to, to get, you know, say Walter Hill, for example, or, you know, uh, somebody who's in, intrinsic to, you know, the production of the day of the dolphin or whatever, who has so many stories to tell so many anecdotes, you know, so much insight and all the rest that absolutely you you want to hear those you know um and yeah as long as you know the, the viewer is going along with you and, and they're fine with it then you know that's all okay i mean because everybody's been doing you know zoom meetings themselves people understand it they know what's going on um so yeah i don't i don't think it's it's an issue i think there were concerns early on like oh can we do this or should we just make it audio only and illustrate it but then, you know, just kind of quickly understood that, you know, it's a valid, it's a valid approach. Yeah. And we were talking about context earlier. Everybody knows why it's there. <laughs> you know, it's exactly. Not, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's not like that anyone's really going to fault you for it. Um, well, look, we, we always ask and, and, you know, we get varying degrees of, of transparency in this because I, well, because it's just the nature of the question. Can you talk at all about what's coming up for Indicator? Um, uh, you know, do y'all, are, are there any new uh, things that would be just interesting to hear about? We are very, I mean, because one of the other things that we do within the company as well is, so, you know, for example, like the social media is something that we control ourselves. We talk, you know, amongst ourselves, me, Nick, Sam, whoever else, you know, like saying, oh, should we, should we tweet this out? Is this a, a good thing to do? Um, we always put the teasers in the newsletters. There are little things like that. When, um, like, you know, when No Time to Die got released in the cinemas, I just kind of thought, oh, maybe we could just do a little sly announcement of a time for dying on the same day, because it's not a similar <laughs> time. So you just kind of move that around. It's like, oh, see this, everybody's, you know, like the hashtag for No Time to Die is, is trending and all of this kind of stuff. Maybe we should, you know, just uh, just pop that out as well. You know, and it's, it's just kind of worked out on that basis. Um, every newsletter has a teaser, unless there's a sale about to come up, then normally we just tease the sale instead. The current sale, which will have ended by the time this goes out, um, has a free gift of postcards on all orders over 50 quid, which um, tease six forthcoming titles. So again, it's all very tightly controlled, you know? We, well, uh, everything, 
there's a lot of intentionality behind every release, which is obvious. We've heard a lot of you speak about it here today, but I think more than anything, it shows up in the releases themselves. Um, it's clear that you're a very passionate person in the way that you went into uh, a, a job that would just stressed me out from a project management perspective, yet seems <laughs> so second nature to you. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you are in the position you're in. I'm glad you're in the seat you're in. Uh, and, and if we have to keep up the, uh, the titillation and the excitement by just waiting for the announcements, and that's certainly a fair ask of uh, your fans. Um, Adam, anything else for Anthony today? Uh, no, that's, that's, that's amazing, Anthony. It's been great to have you on. It's great to have insight into uh, a company that I love so much. A lot of the interviews we do are with Region A um, companies, so I don't, I don't get to enjoy them as much. Um, so this has been great for me as a Region B person. So I, I greatly appreciate your time and talking to us. No, thanks both. No, it's been really, really good. Um, especially as my first ever podcast interview as well. You know, very, very good place to start. Thanks.